But this is something that is a bit of a stiff lesson, if I must say so myself. And so this morning, I'm preaching to myself, and hopefully it's good for you too, because I come with the expectation to Scripture that it challenges me to say, dear Lord, help me. Because if I don't get to that point, then I'm probably not getting out of it the fullness of what it is that God has for me as I come to it. And so may this be a time where we put ourselves in a posture of being receptive to what it is that God wants to say to us uh, through this passage. So here we are in Matthew chapter 14 and starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she said, having been prompted by her mother, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Then the disciples came then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. What a tragic and morbid story, is it not? A little bit strange. And it's fascinating that Matthew puts this here right smack almost in the middle of his gospel. He's just finished up talking about all the wonderful teaching that Jesus has been doing. And if you look back at the end of chapter 13, it gives you a little bit of a, a prelude into this, a little bit of a preamble, where Jesus is talking, Jesus comes back to his hometown, people are amazed by the things that he's doing, and they're still offended by him. And then he says, only in a hometown is a prophet without honor. Only among his own people is the person who's doing the will of God, this disrespected. And hey, you want an example? Here's example A. God sent John to speak to you people, and you chopped his head off. And so there's a little bit of that background that's coming into this, but also there's something else interesting about that story. We have the biblical, what's happening before this, but then also we have the historical, what happens after this within just the history of Rome. And it's good for us to remember that as Christians, our faith isn't based only off of just our own little echo chamber of citing our own sources, but there are external resources and elements that make sense of this in history. We're talking about real people, real events that really happened and it really matters. And so just to step back to the kind of the broader uh, political context of the time, let me read to you um, or summarize for you a little bit of Josephus, who is a Roman historian, who talks about this story, actually. This is not scripture. This is just Roman history. Josephus writes this. And let me quickly summarize here what's going on. So Herod was married to a woman whose father was named Eratos, and he was a king, and he had a quarrel uh, with Herod that had been running on for some time. But then what happened was, so Herod, the Tetrarch, goes um, and marries basically another woman who was his brother's wife while he was in Rome, convinced her to come back and live with him. So he's taking on a second wife here. Well, what he doesn't realize is that his first wife catches wind of this. This is never going to end well. His first wife catches wind of this, so she talks to him thinking that he doesn't know what she knows and says, hey, will you send me to a border fortress between 
um, just, I don't know what excuse she gave, and he says, yeah, absolutely, this is going to be great. I'm going to bring my new wife back as my old wife is, or my other wife is leaving, but she knows what's happening, and through the help of some generals, she flees back to her dad, who's the ruler of this other country. Now, when this lady gets back to her dad, how do you think her dad feels thinking, oh, Herod probably had some words for him, has rejected my daughter in favor of his brother's wife. And there already was a little bit of an international conflict here over territory. And so this provides the perfect opportunity for Eratos to uh, mount an army and attack Herod. So she goes back to her dad. Her dad's royally ticked off for multiple reasons, forms an army. Herod hears, oh, there's an army being formed. His brother, Philip, whose wife he took, who is actually technically also their niece. Man. Um, so, so Herod attacks Eratos. There's a fight. But then, surprise of all surprises, there's a little bit of treachery on Philip's part. And Eratos mops the floor with Herod's army. It's a total wipeout. And you're thinking to yourself, now why would Philip potentially have turned against his brother in this war? Well, I don't know. Like maybe he stole his wife? That would be a good uh, hypothesis for this. And so, I mean, this is just a, a royal dumpster fire, if there ever was one. Um, so Herod's army is destroyed, and then he goes complaining to Tiberius, and Tiberius says, oh, no, you know, you can't come and attack in Rome. So he sends his army and says, we're going to march down there to Sy uh, Syria, and we're going to get Eratos, and we're going to chop his head off. However, before the army gets to capture Eratos, uh, Tiberius dies, and the whole thing doesn't turn out that way. But, you know, one of the things that I love about Scripture is how radical it is in the sense of it's an extremist document in some senses. People say, well, you know, there are problems in my family. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. But has anybody in your family recently tried to marry his brother's wife who is actually your niece and started a multinational war? I mean, we're talking about humanity here. There's some, some brokenness and some messed upness. Now, in Josephus's accounting of this, it's fascinating because here's the next line. This is in the Antiquities of the Jews, chapter 18, verse 116, if you have your copy of Josephus with you this morning. <laughs> Here's what it says. So all of this is happening. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly as a punishment for what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God. And he goes on to describe John the Baptist's mission of baptism. And he's saying now, and this is verse 118, Now when many others came in crowds about him, for they were greatly moved by his words. And Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over other people, might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed to be ready to do whatever thing he should advise, thought it best by putting him to death to, permit, to prevent any mischief that he might cause. Um, and he's saying, here is a guy, I better kill him while I have the chance. And so the Roman histories put John the Baptist as a revolutionary, and Herod is worried about him. But there's this fa isn't that a fascinating link there saying that the Jewish people looked at the destruction of Herod's army and said, oh, God did this to him because this is the guy who killed John. It's neat that we can so situate scripture in history, is it not? We're talking about real people and real times and real places. And so as we look at this chapter, I mean, there's a, there's a pretty good amount about John the Baptist in the Gospels. 
And compared to the overall amount of space, it's a pretty significant percentage. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is this here? I mean, this is interesting, but why is it here? And I think there are a couple parts of this. And one of those is, is that, you know what? John the Baptist is a really big deal. He's a big deal. Think about the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 starts with this. This might pop something in your mind. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Remember that whole bit? I'll prepare the messenger. And then how does the Old Testament end? What is the last chapter of the Old Testament? It's about this, surely the day is coming and will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. And it's talking about the awesome and mighty day of the Lord returning um, and the son of righteousness rising for those who revere his name, going out and leaping like calves released from the stall. And then it gets down to verse 5 of Malachi chapter 4 and says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord's coming, and he will turn the hearts of the children um, to their fathers, or else I will come and destroy the land. The Old Testament ends with a promise of God sending a messenger who will come and prepare the way for his preaching in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's how, that's how the Old Testament ends. And then we have about a 400-year gap. Do you think people are on the edge of their chairs waiting for what is this going to look like? And then obviously, if you remember your birth narratives, of Luke picks up on this theme saying, here comes John the Baptist, the one who is preparing the way, the voice crying in the wilderness. He is the fulfillment and the fullness of this thing. And so it's important that we take time to think about who John the Baptist is, because if you can't get John the Baptist figured out, you won't be able to get the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament sorted out. John the Baptist serves as a transition figure, sort of a paradigmatic shift for us as we think about the Old Testament prophets and the coming and the goodness of God. And John the Baptist shows up and he speaks in epic language. For example, let me just read you a couple things here back in Matthew chapter 3. Um, when John comes and preaches, this is not a kumbaya session. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children of Abraham. And then the point, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals... I am not fit to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and his winnowing fork in his, is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. This is not Jesus is my boyfriend, kumbaya, contemporary Christian music preaching here. He is coming with an agenda about the coming power of the kingdom of God, the, the horrible day of the Lord's coming as the Old Testament ends, and John just, I mean laser focus preaching for repentance. And it's no wonder that people came out into the desert to hear him. And in Matthew chapter 11, then it gets fascinating because we're asking ourselves, why is John such a big deal? Um, you, hear, you know the phrase goat, right? The greatest of all times. You hear that in football or whatever. Um, the goat, the greatest of all time. Who does Jesus say the greatest of all time is? Listen to this, Matthew chapter 11. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. How about that on your resume? <laughs> Jesus saying, among those born of women, there has never arisen one greater than John the Baptist. And then over in Matthew chapter 17, he says, Jesus declares that John was the Elijah who is to come. And Elijah already has come. And they did not recognize, recognize him, but they have done to him everything that they wished. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at his hands. John the Baptist is a big deal. 
That's why scripture takes time pointing about this. And if you remember, even over in Acts, Paul runs into disciples of John the Baptist who hadn't yet understood and realized who Jesus is. But in the passage that we're studying here in Matthew chapter 14, you have this transition of the disciples of John burying the body and then going to tell Jesus. There's a switch here because John the Baptist in his preaching, what? I must decrease and he must increase. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is pointing past himself. He's preaching with passion and precision, but he's saying something better is coming. Something bigger is coming. Get ready for it. Look, here it is. And he is holding the door open for the people of God to see the fullness of what it is that God is doing in the person of Jesus. So this is here because John the Baptist is a big deal and we have to figure out what he's doing. The second reason that this is here is not just that John the Baptist is a big deal, but it's that he got his head whacked off. And Jesus says, yep, remember the whole thing about he's the Elijah to come and the Son of Man will suffer also? And so we see John the Baptist gets butchered, but Jesus also saying, yes, and I'm about to get skewered too. And by the way, this isn't just a transition, this is also a foreshadowing, and it's, it's setting up a standard procedure for the public reception of the agents of God. If we just step back here for a moment and think about this story, just, just zoom out for a minute with me and think about the senselessness of this whole thing. The senselessness of this is sickening. John the Baptist does not die by an accident. It's not like he got kicked by a donkey or a tower fell on him. He got beheaded because of the way that a girl danced at a party. And this is not a sermon against dancing, but you know, you can do what you want with that. Um, but seriously, the greatest prophet of all time has his spinal cord severed because of a spineless and sexually promiscuous religious poser who's infatuated with his own image, who's completely tangled up in the celebration of himself and the opinion of the people, and we end up with the parts of a prophet on a platter. This seems not just pointless, but stupid. And my mom doesn't allow me to say the word stupid, or at least... When I was growing up, we weren't allowed to say that. And you know why? Because it's good to save the word stupid for stuff that's really stupid, like this, right? <laughs> this is not how I would write this story. This is not a sign of the winning team. John is faithful. The most powerful prophet gets his head chopped off. And we're setting up a pattern here for what happens to people that closely follow God and do what God wants them to do. John the Baptist is beheaded, Jesus is crucified, the majority of the disciples are killed in various ways. Look at the book of Acts where the followers of Jesus are killed with rocks in the streets. It's a bloody mess. And here in a little bit, I'm going to ask you if you want to follow Jesus. <laughs> but when I do that, keep this in the back of your mind. This is the biblical pattern of adversity in the proclamation of the kingdom of God because there's an opposition to it. If we wanted to think about this from a literary perspective, maybe I, the closest genre that popped into my mind and I was trying to think through this is, is this a tragedy? In the sense of kind of like that old medieval narrative poem that typically describes the downfall of a great person or maybe more classically even further back in the Greek concept of a tragedy where you have this drama being played out between some kind of conflict between a protagonist and a superior force like destiny and you have this sorrowful or disastrous conclusion that elicits pity or terror for us on the behalf of the protagonist and it teaches us a moral lesson. If you've read Greek mythology and Homer and Iliad and all those, it's packed full of tragedies of the downfall and the destruction of an individual up against a superior force, and we learn something from it, usually that you can't go against destiny or something like that. Is this the downfall of a great man? And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't 
I mean, yeah, he gets killed, but for me, it doesn't read necessarily like the downfall of John. It seems like the logical conclusion of the trajectory that he was on. Now, does it elicit pity or terror? Check. Um, and does it teach a lesson? It also does that. But if that's true, then what is the lesson here? And I was thinking about this while I was getting ready to preach at another church, and we were singing that. You ever sing that course, um, He Works All Things Together for My Good? You know that song? Um, and, and I had this passage in my mind while they were singing that song. And you're thinking, man, how does my good equal a head on the platter? What was God working in John the Baptist's life for his good? And we have to balance this out here. We have to balance the will of God alongside the spiritual warfare that's very real and the consequences of sin. I mean, Herod did some stupid stuff that had real consequences. He had a whole army get destroyed because of lust. He ticked off everybody that he was supposed to be ruling who was a Jew because he chopped off the head of the guy that he was afraid of. Um, or because of a stupid oath to a girl who was dancing at his birthday party. The wages of sin is death. Like, you make stupid decisions and go against what God has. I mean, the point of this could be, hey, speak truth to power and you die. Um, but there's broader consequences to like, we think, oh, well, this seems like a good idea right now without being able to see the full side of that. So I'm asking the question for us this morning that I want us to just wallow in here for a moment is, what is God's work for my good? If the disciples get killed, if Jesus gets crucified, if John the Baptist gets beheaded, if you look at, oh, pretty much all of your Christian brothers and sisters in the history of the Christianity in the world, what is God doing? I like the other Elijah ending better. You remember that whole part? The whirlwind comes down, he's divided by the chariots and the fire and all that. I like that one. That sounds good to me. And the disciples went and got his body and buried it. And, and just for the record, it is a totally fine thing to sing God works all things together for my good because you know why? It's straight out of scripture, right? Romans eight twenty eight. we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Rest of the sentence. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Conformed to the image of the son who got crucified? Okay. God works all things together for my good that I would be conformed to the image of the Son. And so, let's sing this because it's straight out of Scripture, but let's not sing it straight out of context. And Romans chapter 8 is written by Paul, who spends a good deal of his time getting beaten and shipwrecked and hungry at sea and floating around and being mocked and persecuted in the whole nine yards, and that is the Paul who's writing, God works all things together for my good. John's message, same message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What is this kingdom? Who is this God? What does it mean for him to work for his glory and your good? And Jesus shows up proclaiming the gospel. And that's not new to Jesus. Other people would proclaim gospels before uh, he did. When Roman rulers were uh, born, sometimes you would see the good news, literally the gospel, the euangelion, the good news, the birth of Augustus. The proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of the kingdom is not necessarily good news. It's just news. Hey, there's a new king. And the Romans did that. The gospel, the euangelion, the, what we, where we get evangelism from. Good news. There's a new king. Well, that's not necessarily good news. It's just news, right? 
And so whether or not the gospel is good news is completely dependent on the character and the nature of the king that's being proclaimed. If I came to you and said, hey, good news, pick your despot. Assad is king of Nevada. You'd be like, no, that's not good news. I mean, that's interesting, but it's not good news. And so the followers of Jesus could get passionate about saying, there is a new king, there's a change in leadership. John the Baptist is pointing to this and saying, actually, and this is a good king. It's not just a, a new king, but this is a certain kind of king, and he is a good one. There's a change in leadership. There's a kingdom that is rapidly advancing. And this is, you start to see in, in, in Paul's life, him kind of roaring this out, that he desires to be part of that kingdom and to have an inheritance and to be found righteous because Christ is worthy. And it's fascinating then that Jesus makes such high statements about John, who kind of is the herald of this kingdom. And he says in Matthew chapter 11, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, not one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What? He is saying that for those who line up to be part of his kingdom, God will do powerful things through that John the Baptist was just a warm-up lap for the coming kingdom of God. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He's slapping the Old Testament into the New Testament here. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day the Lord comes. Talks about it as a great and dreadful day the Lord comes and everybody says, good news. We're talking about serious power being unleashed on the surface of the earth, about a new kingdom. And Paul, who has all of his T's crossed and I's dotted as far as his religious perfection is sorted out as a Jew, then goes on to say stuff like this because he gets it. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. This is the guy who wrote, God works all things together for my good. I'm giving up everything that was any value or any prestige or what the world thought was valuable to me, and I'm chucking it in, and I consider them garbage or rubbish, or I don't know what your translation says there, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness that comes from God. I'm like, come on. But then we got to keep going. Ah, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You get it? New leadership, new king in town, and he's worthy of our allegiance. That's where we start. That's where we see this fascinating thing in John the Baptist. And now, I'm not saying just because of, of the intensity of what it is that Jesus is doing that there isn't a residual benefit for obedience to him. And like, taking him up on his offer, this righteousness through faith is a very real thing. And he does go on to say it's about uh, attaining the resurrection, right? And so this is a surprise ending that I don't know if John the Baptist knew about. And that's why the story of John the Baptist isn't a tragedy because you know what? In the end of all things, John gets his head back. Surprise! Didn't see that one coming, did you? And I think that's part of what, maybe he did get it. 
What, what was John doing in baptism? How does Paul write about baptism? That when we're baptized, there's a bearing, right? Part one of baptism is I'm dead to my old way of life, to the sin that entangles me, to the power of sin over me. I'm dead. Part one. Part two. But not for long. And I'm back in the resurrection power of Jesus. There's that. So we keep the resurrection in mind. But then there's the part three of that too, right? The laying on of hands and the receiving of the Spirit. Where I like to think of God saying, if you think that was amusing, wait until you see what I do next. Where God pours out his Spirit then on his people. That we might be able to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. And remember that his grace, as Paul writes in Titus 2, is there because it's the, uh, the grace of God that brings salvation. It's appeared to all people, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. And goes on to talk about Jesus redeeming for himself a people who are his very own and purifying them, that they would be eager to do what is good. And so it's the power of the Spirit that then indwells us for us to be part of the mission of God. We dare not let our Christianity or the definition of our faith come back to an idea that God saves me from my sins, gives me the resurrection power, and then do nothing with it. That's what Paul writes to Timothy, the people who have a form of godliness but, not, <clears throat> but deny its power. So are you sitting on your gift? Jesus is starting a war as it were. Are you part of that? Or are you just kind of like, well, what's in it for me? Works all things together for my good. See my new car? Uh, found a parking spot. All things together for my good. Um, now, I'm not saying that God doesn't, <laughs> isn't a lavish God and doesn't pour out blessings, but let's just, you see where I'm challenged by this with John the Baptist? He just goes for it. I don't know. He just, he just goes for it. And there's a little bit of a funny thing here, I guess, that with, you know, when we're walking with this, part of what it means for God to work things together for my good is, you know what? As a follower of Jesus, I can afford to stick my neck out. Because if you get a knife in your neck, you get a new neck. That's pretty sweet. Um, so there is a benefit to it, but the benefit is not the reason that I follow Jesus. The reason I follow Jesus is because he is worthy, and the benefit is the derivative of that. This is not a commercial exchange where I say, you know what, Jesus, I'll say I love you if you give me eternal life. John the Baptist would probably smack us upside the head if we ever came close to that. What is actually going on here? I think, you ever, are you ever cheering in for a football team in a football game? Long Hail Mary pass deep, and the wide receiver goes and just stretches himself all the way out, phenomenal catch, and just wham, gets nailed. And you're kind of, what, what's happening in that moment? You're like, oh, yes. You know, all at the same time of like, dude, he took a hit. But man, he moved the ball down the field. Right? It's your own guy. That, and I see that in John the Baptist of just running long for it, stretching himself out, laying himself out there for what God has for him because he says he is worthy. I'm not even fit to carry his sandals. I am going for it. I'm going to stretch myself out, and yeah, I'll get my head chopped off. But, you know, that's a minor inconvenience compared to the total glory of what it is that God wants to do on this earth. The dude can take a hit. Do you have a vision of what it is that God is calling you to and who he is that you say, you know what, come what may, I'm running in this direction? I don't know how it's going to work out. I know that ultimately it will work out for my good, but John the Baptist probably didn't see it at that moment. This is why John bothers me in a good, healthy way. Because I don't really know if John the Baptist knew about the resurrection. 
Now, I haven't looked into that. Maybe it's a fascinating theological thing, but was John the Baptist being obedient to Jesus because he thought he would be raised from the dead? Looks like he was just obedient to Jesus because what does he say when he sees him? I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. That is a high view of who Jesus is. That is a low view of who John is. Do I function in that capacity? Just because he's worthy. I'm going to follow him. That's a hard thing. And so this passage just slows my scheming down a little bit. And I'm reminded in this, I have the irony or the, well, I don't know what it is. My middle name's David. My, my name is Nathan David. I have the conflicting prophet and king all in one name. Um, and so every time that I get about ready to rain down something, I get this little flick in the back of the head where God says, you are that man. Um, you know, and I'm like, ah, oh, there's a little bit of that in me too. And so I want us to look at this. Think about Herod. What are, what's the, what are the distinguishing characteristics here of Herod and John? Herod, self-absorbed. Now, we can say, well, look at this culture around us and self-absorbed. Well, you know what? There's a little bit of self-absorption in me, if I'm honest about this. And probably, statistically, your Instagram account might show you have a little bit of that, too. <laughs> Herod's about self-absorbed with his own image, his own pleasure, his own power, his own popularity. Pleasure, power, popularity. I don't know any of you. Is there a little bit of that in you? There's a little Herod alive in me in those categories. And then you have John the Baptist. He's out there wearing a camel hair garment, which I'm sure is totally comfortable in the desert, preaching, eating locusts, lives in the desert, dies in a dungeon, and claims he must increase and I must decrease and I'm not fit to carry his sandals. A man who serves Jesus, not for the benefits, but because Jesus was worthy. And so I guess the question we have to answer this morning is, are you a Herod or are you a John? Not a commercial exchange. Not, hey, Jesus, if I do this, then you do this. Nope. Just he's worthy. What is it with people who are honored to serve? It's an honor for me to serve you. Or people who are honored to serve in a, in a government capacity. Or people who are honored to serve. It fascinates me how many people are willing to dedicate and devote their lives in service to a country or to a God who does absolutely nothing for them in response. But they just believe, hey, this thing is worthy of it. I'm challenged by that. And so there's a strange definition of grace. Not strange, but just a fuller sense of God's grace that we have to weave into this, recognizing that Jesus doesn't teach about grace. But everything that he does in his life, everybody points to him and says, that is a gracious God. And what does that grace do? It's an action, it's an expression of God working in us. And it is for our good, but ultimately it's for his glory. And to keep those things balanced correctly in our lives, John the Baptist just keeps me from getting complacent and thinking that for some reason my salvation is about me. Because it's not. It's about what God wants to have done in this world. Are you willing to stretch yourself out?
to go deep, to take the hit. God gives Herod a chance, he sent him a prophet. And John the Baptist marched right on into the middle of that one, didn't he? But he also gives us a choice and us a chance and allows us to evaluate what is the cost of following. And it's a high cost. But as Dallas Willard once said, what we don't stop to calculate is the cost of non-discipleship. So yeah, the cost of discipleship is high, but what's the cost of not doing it? What's the dumpster fire of life that I have lined up for myself if I'm like, well, hey, this woman looks better, so I think I'll send this one back to her dad and get my army to do that. I mean, we laugh at the extreme version of an Herod's life, but there might be some schemers in this room also. Is it worth it? Is he worth it? And that's what we have to answer. Before we decide whether or not, you know, is it worth it for me, we have to say, is Jesus worth it? Why is he worthy of your life? Why is Jesus worthy? Why are you a Christian? Because it makes you feel good? Well, I mean, that's, lots of stuff can make you feel good. Not how did you become a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Why does John follow Jesus? Because he's worthy. Because it's true. Jesus made you. Does that make him worthy of your life? That's a good start. He is all-powerful. He has control over everything. At the end of time, it's all handed over to him, and he hands it over to his Father. It's just the way it is. He's in charge of it all. He presents himself as a king, not up for vote. It just is. We used to sing when I was a kid, a little chorus, Take My Life and Let It Be. Has anybody ever heard that song? Take My Life and Let It Be? Way back, right? Consecrated Lord to Thee. We're saying, you know what, Lord? In this relationship that I have, I'm offering you all that I have, which is all that you gave me, and saying, you know what? Instead of taking the goodness that you've given me and weaponizing it for my own good against you, I'm going to take the, gil- the skills and the gifts and the abilities that you have and hand them over to you and say, take my life and let it be. Would you show me how to use this that I may live a life that follows you because you're worthy? And that's what we see in the early church, right? When they had to kind of sort out who's the Christian and not, and you went forward to uh, offer your incense on the altar, and you could say, Caesar is Lord, and you lived, or you could say, Christos Kyrgios, Jesus is Lord, and get your head chopped off. And the people went forward and dropped their incense, or didn't drop their incense. And so that's the moment that I'm in a very less dramatic way, but with the same implications, reminding myself of this morning, inspired by the life of John the Baptist, anti the example of Herod, but a challenge to you is, is who is Lord? Who's really in charge of this thing? Do I claim that Jesus is Lord because he's a gracious God who lets me get away with pretending like I'm Lord? Or do I really live like he is the Lord of all? It's not about me. It's not about me. And I need to have that little revival service happen in my head, usually within the first 90 seconds of being awake every morning. And so I'm not telling you guys anything new. You know all this. You know this passage. But it's just for us to sit here in front of the Word of God who speaks to us to remind us that we're serving a God who calls us to come and follow Him. He's gracious in that. Come follow me. Doesn't demand. He says, come and look and see and decide.
am I worthy of your allegiance? There are moments in life where we end up hitting the reset button of, you know what, I've tried all of this and this, and it's time for me to wad up that paper and new plan. And that's what Jesus allows us to do as we come before him. To say, you know what, I've tried doing it my way, and you've let me do it, and you've let me see the logical conclusions of that. And so there are those here this morning who have never committed to really following Jesus for the right reasons. And I encourage you to do that. May I recommend to you the person of Jesus because he is worthy and also because he is gracious. And then there are those of us here this morning who have been Christians for a long time, but somehow in that process have let a little bit of Herod slip in to our identity who have somehow started to slip in the direction of, you know what, somehow my salvation is about me. Or I'm a Christian because it's convenient. Or I'm a Christian because of the community. Or I'm a Christian because of the resources of the church. Or I'm a Christian because my family is. Or I'm whatever. And have forgotten, no, the reason I follow Christ is because he's worthy. And so I don't know where you're at. This is where the... Holy Spirit starts to get a little invasive to prod and poke our hearts if we'll turn it over to him and say, Lord, would you take my life and will you straighten me out here? Not because of what it does for me, but because of who you are and what you're calling me to. And so the voice of Jesus, he doesn't demand, he doesn't berate, he simply calls. And he says, pick your option. Look at how this is going to work out. If you come and follow me, you might get killed in the street with rocks. If you don't, you're going to run your decisions to their logical conclusion, which will lead to death. And so I'm offering you a position and an eternal inheritance in my kingdom. Doesn't mean everything's going to be just peachy right now. But I've got this. My peace I give you, not as the world gives you. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And so the one who is in charge of the world invites us this morning to bear our souls before him and to purify us, something we can't do. And so as we pray here and then follow up with the singing, would it be not a performance, but would it be a tender and heartfelt response of saying, Lord, would you take what I am and use me? And we'll have to ask ourselves then, what does a life of worship look like? When we worship, we give worth to, right? Standing on stage and singing, there aren't nine people that worship in this church. We must live this with our lives. Run this to its logical conclusion in every aspect, in every subset, in every element. May it, you have a life of integrity because God allows you to let this message permeate who you are. And that is the way in which the church does evangelism in this city. It's a terrifying thing to pray that before God because you know what? God asks people to do weird things. But teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus prayed that and got crucified. But will you pray that with me? Father, would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That God would use us, age, occupation, family situation, whatever, to make his name great. And may we have a grin in our souls as we do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the way that you've worked in this world and for the way that you've revealed the big story of what it is that you want to have done here. So we do um, 
along with all of creation, glorify you and magnify your name. And we join in that manifold witness of all things, even the rocks who would shout out your glory if we do not. We join in that and we posture ourselves with the angels singing, holy, 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 that you are separate and worthy and so far above us. And may that be the characteristic posture of our hearts, that we look beyond ourselves into who you are. And then may, as a result of that, we really experience the deep touch of your spirit to enable us to be obedient to that which you're calling us to. And so this morning, Lord, I pray for those who have not yet caught a glimpse of your glory, that you would reveal yourself to them in a tangible way, that you would reach down into the depths of their souls and take hold of them, and that in response they might take hold of the task to which it is uh, that you have for them. And I pray for the many others here this morning, Lord, who, for whatever reason, maybe this week or the upcoming week, needed to be reminded that this is about you and that you are worthy. Thank you for John the Baptist and the people that have gone on before us who have run well the race, or the Pauls who have fought the good fight for Christ, who for the joy set before him endured. And so we thank you for this example of what it means to live a realistic life in a broken world with an eternal hope of what it is that you will do. And so may it be true of us and may it be said of us, Lord, that we are people who have given our lives to you and we've ceded control and claimed you to be Lord. And that in doing so, we've opened up a whole nother option and a beautiful array and vista of other people coming to know who you are. Would you take our lives, Lord, and let it be because you are worthy. Amen.